0: In the 84th Psalm, this is what is written. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, which indicates weeping, as they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, O Lord of hosts. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. It's been a long time since I have hunkered down in the eighty fourth Psalm. I mean, a real long time. Um, I have, for years, kept uh, my notes uh, on the various computers that I've gone through over the years and. Uh, the last time I touched on this psalm, according to my records, uh, was before I was the pastor of this church. It was in a Sunday school classroom back in Duluth, um, back in like 2000, excuse me, 1999. And I, I have learned some things over the years. And one of the things that I think God calls us to regularly, I'm not saying I always hear it, but I do believe he's always calling us to. He doesn't want us to ever lose our anchor in the simplicity of the gospel. It doesn't mean we can remain babes in in Christ or we can remain infantile in our spirit, but we also never outgrow the foundational, most important aspects of what it means to walk in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ And so this evening, as we look at these things, I really only want to give you three things that I I hope you've learned to treasure over the years. And at times in your life, you're going to be getting peppered with life. You're going to have shrapnel coming at you. You're going to have difficulty coming at you. You're going to have discouragement within and pressures from the outside. And we we do, we live in a battlefield zone uh, in the Christian life. And, And one of the first things we do is we get disillusioned. And one of the best things that can happen for us is to say, but if everything else falls apart, if all of the gains I have made, if all of the experiences that I have enjoyed begin to seem less bright and shining to me, I can go back to that place of my identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and I can say, there is my security, there is my peace, there is my hope, and nothing can move it. Everything else in life shifts. Seasons change, people come and go, but the steadfastness of the Son of God towards those that have called upon his name will never, ever fail. And tonight, here's three ramifications of your relationship with the Lord. The first is this treasured pleasure. I call it a desire for sanctuary. In the first three verses, the psalmist is writing, and we're not told much about the, the context of when this is written. Uh, I'm just going to make it applicable to today. And here is one of these things that marks a desire for sanctuary. What is it? A high regard for the house of worship. Verse 1, this is the psalmist cry. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The songwriter, and remember your psalms were originally songs of worship that were written and sung in in an intentional direction towards the Lord. And this one is a song at the beginning about the temple of God. And the psalmist calls out and he says, your courts, your place, your dwelling place, Father, is beautiful. And I think to myself, although God is not confined to a building anymore, and that's a good thing, you didn't have to come to 1446 Calvin Davis Circle to meet with the Lord tonight. I'm glad that you did because He's here too. But in in the day of the temple, the temple and the location was so connected with the presence of God that there were were scriptures written about it, there are um, psalms written about it, that the central focal point for the believer in the day of the psalmist and when he's writing is that the temple occupied a precious place. And you couldn't think of the temple without thinking of the presence of God. And therefore, the worshipers had a high regard not only for the God of the place, but the place where God met with them. And this was something that they treasured because it was more than just a building. It it stood for sanctuary. I mean, Israel was an embattled people. And the psalmist is a Hebrew, an Israelite, and they experienced war, and they experienced oppression, and they experienced battles, and ultimately the temple would be brought to ruin and rebuilt again. And we're not sure when this was written. Maybe it was a time after the destruction, and he's thinking backwards, and he's saying, oh, if we could only have the temple again. If we could only have the ability to walk into that treasured sanctuary, away from our captivity, away from the destruction, away from the wars, maybe he was looking backwards to that. I don't know. Maybe the temple was still existing. Maybe he was a pilgrim coming from a, a trip in a distant land and he's saying, I just want to get back to Jerusalem. I just want to get back to the songs of Zion and the people of God and the smell of the sacrifices and the sound of the singing day and night. I don't know what he was thinking, but I know where he was thinking unto. He's saying, Lord, I love your sanctuary. I love that place that represents your presence. But it was not only a place. It was not only geographical and locational. Look in verse number two. This desire for sanctuary also encompasses a deep desire to unleash praise. Now, if you're new around here, God kind of created me with a type A personality. So I like kind of, I like words that carry intensity. So I could have said, um, a desire to sing, but I like this, a deep desire to unleash praise. Because friends, when you are, when you are filled, when you are stoked let me read the verse he says my soul longs that's not that's not calm that's not that's not subtle. He says, my soul longs, yes, saints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, watch this, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now all of the words of Scripture, we need to remember that God actually inspired the writers to write down the words and so none of the words are incidental. And although we have an English translation of a Hebrew text, we can still recognize that the Lord wanted to communicate something here. He wanted to communicate that the psalmist was saying, Lord, I don't want to simply show up for some liturgical service. Lord, I don't want to observe other worshipers. Lord, I'm not looking to to just go through some religious duty. Lord, I want to get there, and I want to unleash my praise. It is such a strong desire in me that I can say that I'm longing for it inwardly. I want to be in your courts. He says, my my soul is fainting. That means it is desperate to be in the courts of the Lord. And then he says this. He says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Do you know why I like that? I I, I remember wrestling through this well over a decade and a half ago because a lot of the influence in my early walk with Jesus was that if you're really worshiping the Lord, it's gonna be very calm and very still and very quiet because if you get too loud, you're gonna wake God up and we don't wanna do that. But I was, and they didn't say that, but that's the way I felt. And, and, and so everything was about order and calm. I'm gonna tell you something, that's foreign to the scriptures. Now, though there is reverence of course in the scriptures, reverence is always more about the attitude and the posture of the heart than it is some just controlling of the outward manifestation. The psalmist says this. He says, it is not only my soul, but it is my body. It is my flesh that are in joy longing to worship you. And so the psalmist was consumed with his God, and because he was consumed with his God, he was saying, yeah, I feel it in my spirit, I feel it in my mind, I feel it in my heart, but I can't can't let it stop there. It's in my flesh, it's in my body. Lord, I want to worship you with everything that I am. And friends I'm going to say this and I know that some of us are extroverted and some of of us are introverted and we're not going to judge each other's spirituality by the way we worship. That's legalistic on both sides of the issue. But I will say this, there is a time for quietness, there is a time for stillness, there is a time for um, what we would call outward piety and reverence but there is also a time to be unleashed. There is a time to celebrate. There is a time to be demonstrative in our worship. The Hebrew and their early Christians always when they came into the presence of God they came with an intensity that wasn't meant to be capped by some social decorum. And so this deep desire to unleash praise was something that the, the, the psalmist was saying, Lord I am longing for your sanctuary because I want to come there in the place and I want to meet with you because what's going on within me has to give expression to itself. Do you come that way when we gather to worship? Do you come compelled on the inside? Chances are if you do, it's not by accident. It's not incidental. I can tell you we don't have any kind of magical setup at the threshold of the front doors that when you cross into the building all of a sudden you're, you're whammied and you're going to get the worship vibe on. It, it is something within that emanates outward. It isn't outward going inward. It's inward emanating outward. And the psalmist is conveying that to us, but I like verse number three because lest you get scared with the, pardon me, the intensity of verse number two, verse number three shows that it's not just some mindless kind of you know, charismania, but look in verse number three. He also talks about the this, this sparrow and the swallow. I call it a, a discerning eye within the moment. He, he's in the same place. He, he's talking about the courts, the temple, the place of God's habitation. He's talking about worshiping with all that's in him. But look at verse 3. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she can lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Uh, That's one of those verses that is a little bit of a challenge to preach. And so I just meditated on it today. And here's what I see. I see the psalmist in the presence of this amazing, glorious, immeasurable God. He's in the context of temple worship where there would have been sights and sounds and smells, singing and sacrifices and and incense going up. There would have been a throng of people there in the courts coming to worship and to pray. And the temple itself, immense, an immense building. And yet the, the psalmist is saying in the context of his worship in the presence of this immeasurable almighty God who is the king, he says, even the tiny little sparrow has a place. Even the insignificant little swallow, Lord, you are immense and great and immeasurable and almighty and omnipotent, and yet you are accommodating and gracious enough to where the the seemingly insignificant sparrow is even welcome in your presence. I don't know if that speaks to you, but if you have a proper sense of who you are before this great and glorious God, sometimes you're going to feel like an insignificant sparrow. Sometimes you're going to feel like, man, I really don't belong in this setting. Yeah, I will say this, if the sparrow and the swallow can come, and they're laying their nest there in this amazing place of the, inhabitation, of the habitation of Almighty God, if the sparrow and the swallow are able to be there in the presence of the sovereign, how much you? How much more you who've been bought by the blood of Jesus? How much more you that have been called sons and daughters forever and ever of the Most High God say, Jeff, but I'm weak, I'm not strong, I don't have anything to offer. Well, do you think God was impressed with the sparrow and the swallow? They're 100% dependent on God. Even Jesus said this, listen, you're better than the birds of the air and the Lord takes care of them, doesn't He? And yet again in a different place Jesus said this, that the the Lord, yes He's great and He's immeasurable and He's sovereign and yet not even a single sparrow can fall to the ground without the Father taking note of it. What does all that mean? It simply means this, in those seasons where you feel like the smallest among the small, the least significant among all of the other significant people, When you're not at the top of your game, when you don't have anything to bring, isn't it a wonderful thing to know that you're not accepted in your own worthiness, you're accepted in the Beloved. You're accepted by Jesus Christ. You're accepted fully and freely. And I haven't said it in about three months but I'm gonna say it again. Those of you that are in Christ are as acceptable to God the Father as God the Son is. That means there is no middle ground. You're either fully acceptable to God the Father because of Jesus or you're completely rejected because you don't have Jesus. And for those of us that do, we can take the moment and discern. Let me just say a few things before moving on to point two. I love it when we come together as a church family and we worship. I love, we, we gathered together as, uh, as elders and, and a couple of guys on staff and some other ministry leaders. On Monday night we were at a, a, a man's house who had roasted a pig and, and, and laid out a spread, he and his wife, and I had never met him before. And we just got over there and we just spent time together. We didn't talk a whole lot of ministry. And, and it was just an amazing thing just to be with the people of God. We are called human beings, not human doings. And so much of our life is about activity and running around and rushing. And if we're not careful, even in our worship, it can about, let's execute the next task. we got three minutes to do this, five minutes to do this. Got to get a song in. Got to get some announcements in. Got to get a little bit of offering in. We've got to beat the Methodist to the Piccadilly cafeteria so we can get lunch. So we got to get out at a certain time. And it's all just kind of steam, streamlined. And if you're not careful, God's got little sparrows and swallows and all these little things that He's doing that He wants you to notice, but we don't take the time and the moment to discern. I'm going to encourage you, listen, slow down a little in your mind, even if you can't slow down your schedule. You can be at rest even when your schedule is trying to press you along, but God is at work all around you. He's working in you, around you, for you, and through you. And it's not that He ever stops doing that, but a lot of the times, we just get distracted, and we're not noticing and appreciating these treasured pleasures. Now, let's go down into verses four through seven, and let's recognize, as I've talked about individual worship and the end of being the individual being in the presence of God. Let's recognize that Christianity is not an individualistic, um, for lack of a better word, religion. Christianity is not a religion at all actually, but uh, in the context of worship and systems of faith and belief, Christianity is a community affair. That you are not saved to fly solo. I appreciate the fact that you know how to say hi-ho silver in several different languages, but you are not the lone ranger. You're meant to do life with other people. Look what the psalmist says in verses 4-7 through as we talk about a desire for community. First of all, we'll talk about worshiping together. Look in verse 4. Blessed are those, plural, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Selah. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but did you know that there were elements of the Levitical law and the Levites that were uh, connected to temple worship where there was always something worship oriented going on at the temple? That there were people that served there day and night. We're going back in history about 3,000 years ago. We're crossing an ocean. We're going back to the Middle East, that little sliver of land called Israel. And there in the capital city in Jerusalem, 3,000 years ago in this temple, there was always something going on uh, for the glory of of the God of Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It mimics heaven. There's always worship going on in heaven. And so when the psalmist is writing here, I think he's probably referring to the, uh, the priests that were assigned a night and day worship. Uh, very much like our friends at International House of Prayer have structured their ministry and they have 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, nonstop worship and prayer going on uh, just down the road from us and it was similar in the day of the temple. So he says this, he's saying, blessed are those who stay in your household who are ever singing your praise. Um, One of the things that I believe must happen in our lives individually and as a church family, but even broader in the body of Christ all over the world. And I, I, I'll say this at the risk. I could be wrong, but I actually believe circumstances in our nation are going to create this reality. I believe that the Sunday morning slotted worship mindset will probably within 10 to 20 years be either taken away or it will be dramatically impacted. What do I mean by that? I believe that we are going to have to learn how to be worshipers outside of a building, outside of a scheduled meeting, outside of a liturgical order of service. Why do I believe that? Well one that's the way God's people worshiped for a very long time. They worshiped all of the time. They met with each other breaking bread. They sang. They prayed, they ministered to each other. And it wasn't just on the the day of worship. Um, But as time has gone on and as cultures have changed and here in the West we are people of convenience and people that are obsessed with time. Uh, By the way, if you ever travel internationally you'll you'll learn very quickly that Westerners and especially Americans are really the only people in the world that are obsessed with moment by moment time. Uh, you, You go to other parts of the earth. I have a friend who's from Africa And and he said, hey, I'm going to meet you at 2 p.m. He said, Africa time. And you know what that means? Not before 2 p.m., but we don't know exactly when. And he tells me that all the time, and it's a joke, and I had to learn to accommodate that. But we're obsessed with time, but this is the thing, this night and day. You know how frustrating it could be if the only time you really worship or seek to worship or have learned to worship is on Sundays? Do you know how important it will be then for you to have worship your way on Sundays? I'm going to pass through you here for a minute. The degree to which you say Sunday is my worship time then you're going to have your preferences elevated so high because if that's your only real time of worship you're going to really want things to be conducive to your own particular flavor of how you worship God. But the beautiful thing is you don't have to live like that. If you're worshiping Monday and Tuesday, and of all things, Wednesday, on Wednesday night, if you can worship, wake up early, stay up late in the middle of the day on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, then Sunday is just icing on the cake. And because you've worshipped all week long, you can come in on Sunday, and you don't have to have everything the way you want because basically you've worshipped all week. You can come in on Sunday and say, where's the swallow and the sparrow? Where's that little thing God's doing? And yet because of our culture, friends, we have decided somewhere along the line is, man, we have got to get our worship in on Sunday and because that's the only day to worship you better make me happy in the way you do it. You know churches are getting ransacked by that and, and uh, the consumeristic, I'm getting off track here a little bit but maybe somebody needs to hear it, the consumeristic mindset where the people come to the church and they say, you better make us happy. You better suit my personal preferences. You better validate my, my tastes and What's happening in, in our culture is if, if you don't do it at this church they can. They can pick up and move to another church. And that pastor has to inherit that person and their problems. And then they move to another church. And so what are we going to do? We're going to encourage you and we're going to practice it ourselves. Worship all day. You say, Jeff, I don't know how to do that. Well, great. Now you have something to work on. That, that's, that's what we're to do. We're to become worshipers of the living God. And the hallelujah, if they ever do, come and close the doors of our local churches if they ever do come in and try to systemically regulate how we worship, what we can say, what we can sing, what we can teach, or what we can't, could you imagine that if that was the only place we could worship, then we would be lost. But we can worship with each other like they do in China, in small cloisters of secret house meetings. We can do it like they do in the Middle East, under the the threat of persecution. Their worship is infused with meaning, because it always costs them something. So what I'm encouraging all of us to do is to recognize that we better start learning to spy out the swallow and the sparrow because uh, if we're always looking for just only the majestic temple stuff uh, then we're going to miss out on some of the things that God has for us. And we need to be doing this together. Worshiping together. Blessed are those verse 4 who stay put in your house Lord who dwell in your house. Verse number 5. Not only worshiping together but growing together. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the uh, highways to Zion. When we're talking about growing together, um, there's a lot of different ways we grow, and we're going to see in this psalm that one of the ways that God grows us is not always through the fire on the mountain and the blazing glory and the visions and the signs and the wonders— Those things are great. I'm not going to avoid those things if God wants those to happen in a season of our life. But but growth sometimes, I can say this word in here and I hope you understand my heart. Growth, spiritual growth isn't always that sexy. Uh, it, It isn't always that ooh. Sometimes spiritual growth is in the salt mines. Sometimes spiritual growth is in the valley where the wind's not blowing and the fruit's not coming forth. Sometimes spiritual growth is nothing more than pushing a boulder from one point to another back to the other point. Sometimes spiritual growth is through the mundane. Sometimes it works out that way. But the beauty of it is this friends, if we will be steadfast, if we will be consistent and we will be in connectivity not only with the Lord individually but with each other relationally as God has intended it, we will grow together. When I, when I look out and I see Mick and Lorna and I see Bobby as she testified earlier about being here since 1992. And I, I see some of you that have been a cornerstone from the day that it opened and now moving into New Bridge. And literally we've got people that have been abiding in the same church for longer than I've been alive. And I'm 46 years old and I think to myself, those people have bloomed where they were planted decades ago. And I can promise you something, they didn't always grow through frosty, lovely, sweet times. As a matter of fact, I won't have you raise your hand because you're not in third grade, but I, I would love to say this raise your hand if most of your growth has come through difficult times. And that's usually the lot for almost all of us. And yet, aren't we tempted to avoid the difficult times, to avoid the stretching? to kind of uh, sidestep the denials that have to come our way. And there's something within our hearts, and I'm not pointing the finger at you, I'm just talking broadly in the human experience. We really want green grass and crystal clear streams. And it doesn't always work that way. And when we stick it out, I'm going to tell you, I want to be worshiping the Lord together with, with as many of you as I can when Jesus comes back. I don't want to bounce around. Now, God has the sovereign right to move whoever He wants, whenever He wants. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the lily pad movement. What is that? It's where you jump from church to church to church to church, like a little pond, a toad in a pond. And, And I'm saying this, if we'll just stay put. And we'll grow together. There's something beautiful about looking at somebody that you've been worshiping and serving with for 5 to 10 to 15 to 20 years and you can say man I remember when he or she was here and we were there together and man how God has grown us. Growing together blessed are those whose strength is in you. So it begs the question where did you draw your strength from today? Where did I draw my strength from today? Where are we going to go to to find that strength that is necessary tomorrow? Do you know what worry is? Worry is that little process of the, the ticker tape, the calculator in our brain that's saying, I don't have today what I need for tomorrow. And because I don't have today what I need for tomorrow, I feel insecure. And we, we get Bible amnesia. Do you know when God said you would have what you need for tomorrow? Tomorrow tomorrow. And so we, we need to be able to say I am going to be at rest and I'm going to take my daily bread strength because not only is my God here with me today but I'm also here with others who are growing in like manner. So look down at verse number 6. Y'all with me? Challenged together. Now this is my sweet spot because I, I, I like preaching on challenge and enduring challenge and growing through challenge because it's kind of in the context of the last seven or eight years of my own life. And the psalmist says here as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. That's a really poetic and picturesque statement both in the Hebrew and here in the English. Um, The the root word there where we get that proper term Baca, it is associated with weeping. It's associated and and it's an image that the psalmist uses to describe the process of walking through and it it seems to be continuing the picture of moving towards the temple, moving towards the presence of God, moving towards that place of serenity and sanctuary. But before you get there, how many of you already know that you're gonna pass through some valleys that are gonna have the sound and the substance of weeping and loss and challenge and hurt. The Bible does not support the extremes of the prosperity movement. And I'm talking about the movement. Does God prosper? Absolutely. I'm not talking about biblical prosperity. I'm talking about the movement today that says, as you follow the Lord, it's always going to be happy. It's always going to be healthy. It's always going to be bountiful. You just don't find that in scripture. And you also don't find it in your own experience. Sometimes it's the Valley of Baca. And sometimes you're actually not imagining things. Sometimes life is really, really tough. Sometimes circumstances stink. Sometimes people act foolishly and and painfully and intentionally towards us. And whereas we're longing for, for an oasis, what we've got is a valley where the only moisture is the tears running down our faces. And so the psalmist is saying here, but watch this, he's talking about growing together and getting our strength from God. And so in that context he says, yeah, the the people that are moving towards the sanctuary, moving towards intimacy, moving towards God's strength, those people actually take those tears and they turn them into sources of refreshment. That means you're learning from your pain. I always say this, I mean, don't waste a good trial. I mean, good, not alive. I mean, dignify the trial. Get something out of your suffering. Get something. Don't, don't just lose those tears and let them evaporate for no good purpose. The psalmist says here that the, the believers, the ones who are getting their strength from the Lord, yeah, they weep. But they learn from their weeping. And those places of weeping turn into pools of refreshment. That's right there at the end of verse number 6. And the, the beauty of it is this. And this is where I go back to that Lone Ranger mindset. Suffering is bad enough when you have to go through it but it's intensified in its negativity when you go through it alone. I don't think there should ever be a case where a Christian goes through suffering alone. Unfortunately a lot of us are wired uh, to where we don't want to trouble other people with our problems. We have self-imposed solitude when we're struggling because we're stoic individualistic Americans and you know we can handle this. And frankly sometimes you can't. And I don't know that you're supposed to. And so when we're talking about being challenged together, I can promise you something. I'm probably not the most prophetic person in the room, but I'll make just an unabashed prophetic statement. It's probably more common sense than it is prophetic. Everybody in here is challenged right now in some area of his or her life, every one of us. Everybody that's going to listen to this or watch it later through media is deeply challenged. And most of you are going through a, a specific challenge right now that you're thinking about as I say the words. And we go through this thing in our own, it's kind of like uh, race horses. When they put them in the gate, all the horses are going to run the race but as they get in the gate they're all in a different little compartment. They're kept off from each other. They're going to run the same course but they're all kept from each other and we're doing that so often in our churches and in our Christian relationships. It's like you run in your lane, I'll run in my lane. We're running in the same direction. We're on the same turf. We're, we're, We're trying to win the same prize but stay out of my lane. And sometimes the greatest thing that can happen is when we see somebody struggling and suffering, don't let them tell you to stay out of their lane. Just gloriously and humbly and joyfully and spiritually barge on in their life and say, no, you're not going to go through this challenge by yourself. Don't go through the Valley of Baca alone. And if you're here tonight and you're going through that weeping season and you don't think that anybody cares, I'm just going to tell you, it's not enough for us to glibly cliche and say, Jesus cares. Yes, He cares. Of course He does. And because He cares, He sends us into each other's lives. And friends, we need to answer that call. Verse number 7, overcoming together. Lest you think it's all suffering, and especially if you're here tonight and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to tell you we suffer, but we overcome. Hallelujah. That's our nature. We're overcomers. We're not victims. We're not doormats for the devil. Look in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now watch this. All of this is using plural pronouns. It's it's those, 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 and they, and they, over and over again. So it isn't a one-woman show or a one-man show. And here it says that together they are moving from one strength to another strength. You might want to just write in the column of your Bible there spiritual growth or spiritual maturity. That chances are, if you'll slow down, you have grown. Don't go under the false assumption that if you're growing spiritually things get easier. <laughs> they, they didn't for the Lord Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus grew in stature and favor with God and man. Now you go home and wrestle through the theology of that one. I'm not going to bark it out right now. But the fact of the matter is as the Son of Man there was the Scriptures plainly say that Jesus grew. It says that He was made perfect through the sufferings. Now I don't understand all of that but if Jesus Jesus has that said about him, how much more you and me that we're going to be maturing, we're going to move from strength to strength that we're going to grow in stature and favor. And so I'm asking you right now, can can you take a, a, a one minute, a 60 second inventory and see areas in your life where you're stronger today than you were before you went through that valley of Baca? Of course you can. And so when you go through your next valley of weeping, just understand this. It's not always the devil. He gets a lot of credit for stuff he doesn't have a thing to do with. It's not always the devil. Sometimes the Lord leads you into the valley of Baca because through those tears He's going to bring refreshment that you'd otherwise never taste. If, if you're able to be here on Sunday morning, I'm going I'm to utilize a passage that for some will impact you because it's going to show you how the Lord, uh, the Father, and the Holy Spirit actually, Father and Spirit had this play out in the life of the Son of God. That you're going to see Father, Son, and Spirit with the emphasis coming down on Jesus the Son of God at the beginning of His ministry and you're going to see how Jesus Himself went through exactly what I'm talking about and that's how He began His public ministry. And so be really careful. I, I, part of this message is to kind of expose some of the lies that are, are kind of just assumed by us. We believe a lot of stuff that's just not biblical. We don't do it because we're horrible Christians. We do it because we've been mistaught, misinformed. And, and the truth is, is that if you're going to go from strength to strength, that means the amount of weight that you're lifting spiritually, circumstantially in life, the amount of weight has got to grow heavier and heavier for you to get stronger and stronger. You wouldn't know it now, but I was actually a gym rat from about 1984 till about 1993. I was in the gym five days a week. I lived to work out. I'm getting depressed thinking about it, actually. So just give me a moment to go through my own valley of Baca here. But um, I I, I lived to work out. And the one thing that you know is if you're you're going to get stronger, and back in those days, it it was about bulk. You know, we all wanted to look like miniature Arnold Schwarzeneggers. And, And so we would always be going for more weight, more weight. And I remember we'd keep records, okay, we bench press 250 this month and six months later we're 275. And you won't believe this, but I remember as a senior in high school my max bench press was 315 pounds and I was only about five foot well about the size I am now. And, 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 and somehow I was able to well, do you know what happens? When you lift the weights it tears down the muscle you have. When those muscles grow and repair themselves they come back harder, stronger and able to lift a higher level of weight. It's the same thing in the spirit. That where God grew you in that last trial with that last weight, he allowed you to receive more than you could handle on your own, but not more than you could handle if you leaned on him. And that was verse, by the way, verse number uh, five. Our our strength is in you. And so if if you're going to walk with him to that next place where he's going to use you, where you're going to experience more of him, chances are before you get there, you're going to sense a little more weight on you. So here's a temptation for all of us. The temptation is to say, yeah, I went from strength to strength, but I don't want to go from strength to strength to the next strength. Because I know that the next strength, there's going to be some heaviness on me. And so many of us self-stagnate. Are you following me here? Am I making sense? We self-stagnate. We say, okay, this is actually good enough. Thank you, Lord. Go ahead and... Busy yourself with the other spiritual power lifters. I'm going to stay in the welterweight class. I'm just going to be right here because I don't want any more on me. And we stagnate. And we don't go to the next strength. And what's funny is God doesn't abandon us, but we lose out on what he has for us at that next stage. I want to tell you, you may be in your 20s here. Um, you, You have a lot of migration ahead of you. You've got a lot of strength to strength awaiting you. Don't stop. Don't get distracted, don't sell out to lesser things. You may be in your 60s here. You say, Jeff, I've gone through more strength to strength processes than you, I've forgotten more than you've ever experienced. That's okay, but you're still not done yet. You're not. So how do you know that? Because you're here. You have a brainwave and a pulse. That means he's not finished with you yet. That means he has something for you. Uh, Some of you think that you're weaker than you are. Some of you don't know how strong you are yet because you've listened to the wrong people and they put a ceiling above you and they conditioned your own thinking about what God wants to do with you because they made your weaknesses the focus and and they've robbed you of your understanding. No, your weaknesses have never been the issue. God's strength has always been the issue and God has never looked at somebody and said, you're too weak for me to use. I will tell you what he has said. He's looked at people and said, you're too strong for me to use. Paul said that Jesus told him, Jesus said to Paul, my strength, Paul, is made perfect in your weakness. Can you imagine that? That the best display of Christ's strength in our lives comes not through our meeting Him halfway, but comes through our weakness. And yet we've been trained our whole lives to be Superman and Superwoman. And sometimes that gets in the way. And so challenge together, yes, but overcoming together, listen... Go for it. Go for it. What do you have to lose? I mean, this outline, two weeks in a, two messages in a row I've, I've, I've butchered the outline, but I really feel like God's pouring this into somebody. You don't want to lose your destiny for comfort, do you? I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about God's purpose for you on this earth. He'll let you settle. It's epidemic. He lets people settle all the time. He's not going to force us to receive His best. He is going to give it to those who want it bad enough to persevere. And I don't think I've stepped into God's best for my life yet. I I love life. I'm enjoying it. I thank God for what He's doing. But there's something in the spiritual pulse of the children of God who are longing and thirsting for His courts and and pursuing intimacy with Him in the temple and, and, and singing and praising and just have made their lives about them. There's something within us that pulses and says, man, it's been good, but it's not as good as it could be. Jesus, what's next? So let's get down to that and I'll turn you loose and shut off the fire hydrant here in a moment. Verses 8 through 12. A desire for intimacy. We need these four quick things in 10 minutes, okay? Here we go. Intimate presence. Verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, watch this, listen to his, his request. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear. O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. And then he says, This, look on, pardon me, the face of your anointed. There's three things I see that the psalmist is asking for in these verses eight and nine. The first is attention. Hear my prayer, give ear. He's saying, Lord, pay attention to me every one of us, I'm not even going to ask you, I'm just going to tell you, every one of us have gone through moments or seasons, maybe years, maybe your whole Christian experience, where you feel like God will listen to anybody but you. Y'all look so self-righteous. Not me, Jeff. I know he No, come on. There have been moments where you're like I'm going to pray, but I know he's not listening. I know he's not going to listen to this. And we've gone through that kind of stuff before. And I like what the psalmist does. He doesn't shove his hands in his robe pockets and, you know, sulk or pout. He gets bold. He says, Lord, I need you to listen to me. I want you to hear my prayer. We've got to learn how to pray like ancient Hebrews. You read some of their prayers and they almost seem irreverent. I mean, I was like, you can't talk to God that way. Except when you remember that the words are actually inspired by God. And sometimes I think the Lord wants us to ratchet it up a notch and quit playing nice and just say, Lord, I've got something I've really got to unload. I need you to pay attention. The second thing is this. Protection. Behold our shield. He's talking to God and he's telling God, God, I regard you as my shield. Well, let's go through some military strategy 101. What does a shield do? It protects you. It buffers you. It places something between you and the thing that is designed to hurt you. And I like that the psalmist is saying, Lord, you're the God of Jacob. And I love that reference because Jacob was so ridiculously blessed. His name was later changed to Israel. The whole nation derives its identity from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob who became Israel. And Jacob was a sinner, man. He was a schemer. He was a a manipulative guy. He was a liar. And if there's anybody in Scripture who got blessed beyond what he deserved... Man, it's Jacob. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, I really need you to hear me. Lord, you're my shield. You're my protector. And Lord, I just remind myself, I'm like Jacob. I am of the lineage of Jacob. Kind of embedded in that reference is, I know I don't deserve it, but hallelujah, you're so good, I'm going to ask for it. (laughs) I'm I'm probably the only one getting blessed by my own sermon tonight, but I'm just going to soak it in for a minute. Um, Friends, listen. That there's a self-righteous religious spirit that not only just kind of holds other people hostage and you're evaluating them and you're criticizing them and you're smoldering about them and you're comparing yourself with them or comparing them to you so you'll feel better. But there's also a self-righteous kind of smug spirit that says God will never bless me because I'm so undeserving. Well, let's just go ahead and get it on the record. We're all undeserving. All of us are on our own. I mean, all of us on our own can warrant no blessing from God. You have nothing to bargain with. That's why it's called grace. I'm not going to tell you that God arbitrarily throws out his blessings on the willfully rebellious and disobedient. I'm going to assume better things about us tonight, but I am going to say this on my best day, I don't deserve his least blessing. I'm a Jacob, he's Jesus. And yet I want God, God the Holy Spirit to cultivate in us the the holy biblical, even theological confidence to say to the Lord, Lord, you're just so good that I'm just going to believe that you're willing to bless me in the midst of my weakness, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my ups and downs and my commitments to you. You're just so good. I'm going to make it about you and not about me. It's all about your goodness, not about my unworthiness. And so God, I really need you to hear my prayer. Lord, I really need you to protect me and be my shield. There's been more than one time in our experience with the Lord where we sense something bad approaching, trouble on the horizon. We sense it, we see it. Maybe it comes in the form of a word from somebody else. Maybe it's a, a diagnosis from a doctor. Maybe it's trouble in the home and We sense the badness. You ever sense the badness kind of encroaching upon you? And sometimes that's when the enemy, being the subtle serpent that he is, slithers in. And this is what he whispers in our ear. He says, the reason why the bad stuff is coming is because you're a bad Christian. And he gets in there as he always does and he's the accuser. And I'm gonna tell you, we have to factor into our prayer life. Lord, here comes the serpent. Here I am in a circumstance that's bigger than me. I need you to be the shield between me and him. And you come with that kind of boldness, friends. I'm going to tell you something. He will do it. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. I mean, would you only rescue your little helpless child if she or he had been good that day? Could you imagine that kind of that? I mean, I wonder what God feels sometimes when I think, well, he's not going to help me because I failed last week or yesterday or five minutes ago. He's a much better father than we are dads and moms, and none of us would do that to our kids. Intimate presence will soothe your fears. Loyal purpose, verse 10. Here's the famous statement. We, we, We sung it over the years. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I love that song. Would sing it right now, but I don't want to embarrass myself, but I love that song. And then he says this, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. When you're in the far country, you learn that, man, I would rather just be one day in my treasured pleasure of the intimacy of the Lord than a thousand out here in the hedonistic pleasures of my culture. I'd rather have one day in the simple presence of God in the quietness and the stillness and the goodness of God's presence than an elongated vacation on the most beautiful scenery with the greatest sensual pleasures that the world can offer. I'd rather be one moment with you, Lord, than anywhere else that would cause me to be apart from you. And then he's thinking of the temple again. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the temple, in the house of my God, than to dwell in the uh, tents of wickedness. That's where I opened up the, the message. And it's time for me to close it here in a moment. We take a lot of stuff for granted. And there has to be moments in our lives where we, we intentionally say, I'm going to be grateful because Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I was chosen before the foundation of the earth. I am saved by the blood of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am sealed by the spirit. I am led by the spirit. I'm filled by the spirit or with the spirit. I am on an uninterrupted trajectory to glory where I will inhabit paradise with God himself forever and ever. And we have to intentionally stay grateful about that. Do you realize how quickly and easily you and I get sidetracked by stuff? I mean it is so easy to knock us off the mark of what we do have because we are addicted to focusing on what we don't have. You know I don't have it exactly the way I want it. I'd probably make a mess of it if I did. But I have it a lot better than I deserve. And the psalmist says, yeah I'd I'd just rather be standing at the front door of the temple than to be hanging out with the chief of sinners and the comfort of their tents with all that that has to offer. That's a great moment for us to consider. Um, the longing and the allure of the world really, really uh, appeals to us when we're younger. A lot of us grow out of it just by age, but it's got to be more than that. The greatest antidote to dissatisfaction is gratitude towards God. I'll say that again. The greatest antidote antidote to dissatisfaction is gratitude towards God. If you're going through a murmuring, complaining, inward season where nothing's good, nothing's right, people are irritating, people are disappointing, I can tell you what happened. I don't know when or where, but you got your eyes off of the Lord. And you are sidetracked by lesser things. I'm going to go to the last, uh, I'll go to verse 11 and I'm, I'm just going to quit. Wise provision. I'm going to encourage you and we're going home. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. There's the word again, shield, shield, shield. He illuminates and He protects. He's the sun and the shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Well, you can either believe that or not. The Lord bestows favor and honor and then I love this, no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. <laughs> That's a big audacious promise. He says, any good thing He deems what is good, He will lead us to it, and He will give it to us as we follow Him. And as we follow Him, we're walking uprightly. It's not about you dotting every I and crossing every T and living a sinless existence and therefore you're upright. No, when your posture of your heart is towards the Lord and you're walking in honesty and humbly and humility before the Lord, though you will stumble, though you will make mistakes, though you will sin from time to time but if your heart's trajectory is towards honoring God then as those seasons go you're walking uprightly. You're not walking in deceit and falsehood and and overt sinfulness. You're pursuing Him. And this is what God's promise is. As you do that, as you follow me where I'm leading you, I'm going to make a promise to you, child. You're going to have every single thing you need when you need it. And so this is where it comes down to a treasured pleasure. My great delight would would be if at least one person would go home tonight relieved of that thing that they're obsessing over and worrying about because they're hearing the Holy Spirit say, listen, I'm not going to withhold any good thing from you. I'm going to give it to you when you need it. So don't borrow tomorrow's trouble. You have what you need. Do you know that? Right now, in this moment, you have everything you need. And as you walk behind the Lord and he leads you to where he's taking you, his promise is you'll have everything you need every step of the way. The trouble comes when we don't believe that and we take a different path. He's going that way, but we say, not real sure. I think I can do this on my own. And we cut cross grain. Don't do that. Trust him.